0: church. Isn't that good? You guys can be seated. Now, I don't know if you've ever been woken up by a smell in your house before, but if you have, I hope the smell was like bacon and eggs or coffee. Coffee is a great smell to wake up to. When I was 11, I was sleeping one time, and I was, I woke up to the smell of an electrical fire now, an electrical fire has a certain kind of smell to it. It's, just, it's gross and nasty. And, it, and if you think that waking up to that smell would freak you out a little bit, add on top of that, we were sleeping on a boat. About a week's worth of travel into the Caribbean Sea, leaving off of the coast of Colombia. I was with my dad, who was a commercial fisherman, on an 85-foot vessel and woke up, and there's this smoke. The generator had caught on fire and fried the battery. And they put the fire out, but we couldn't radio for help. This was back in the 90s, before the days of satellite phones that were accessible um, to commercial fishermen. And we were just adrift at sea. And talk about feeling, you, you know, the, the saying like you're in deep waters, <laughs> like we're literally in deep waters in a situation where there's nothing that we can do to immediately fix what's going on. And so what do you do when you're in a situation where you can't fix everything? You do the next step that you can do. You take the next step positive action. Okay, so right now we're setting out pots and buckets and barrels and anything that can catch water so that when it rains each afternoon, we'll replenish our water supply. We're going to hand line fish so we make sure we have plenty of fish in the ice hole that when we run out of the food that's in the cabinets, we'll be living off of fish until somebody finds us. We're gonna play dominoes each each day so we don't go crazy and kill each other. Like we're just gonna keep doing what we can do because there's some situations that you find yourself in where you're in a deep situation where you just can't correct everything all at once. And so, so many of us, when we're in those situations, we get immobilized and we do nothing and as we get into today's first section of Scripture, I want to just start with the thought that when you're in deep waters, you just do the little bit that you can. And just in case any of you guys are worried about how the story ends, don't worry, I did not die, <laughs> all right? Um, eventually, we had another fisherman come. We radioed for help. Someone from our fish company back in Columbia came and got us and, and towed us back in. So I am okay. I didn't die when I was 11. Um So many times we're in these deep waters. We don't know what to do. Sometimes when we feel like we've been called to do something that's bigger than us or our situation in our marriage, our career, or our life, it just feels bigger than what we can do, bigger of a responsibility than should be entrusted upon us, we often freeze. And I want to just impress on you through this next passage. We just need to do the next right thing. And we're going to jump into this circumstance. There's three different passages that we're going to cover today. We're in this series called The Story. We, we began the, this series 24 weeks ago, and we're going through the story of Scripture from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of time in Revelation, and we're in the beginnings of Jesus' ministries here. And right at the beginning, he's in this circumstance with John the Baptist, who was supposed to be the forerunner, the one who made the way to help declare that this was the Messiah and show proof that this was the Messiah's ministry that was beginning. And so Jesus is approaching John the Baptist to be baptized. And we're gonna be in Matthew chapter three, Gospel of John chapter three, and Gospel of John chapter four, if you like to flip along in your Bible. But we're gonna start with Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, in this circumstance, John rightfully so. I mean, could you imagine Jesus himself coming up to you and being like, I need you to pray for me. You're like, how could I pray for you? How could I baptize you? Like, you should be doing that for me. Like, I, they, that, that is a calling that is over my head. Someone more spiritually mature, someone smarter, someone better has to be around to do this for you. It can't be me who does this for you, Jesus. And there will be times in your life, in your marriage, in your career, in your experience where you will feel like the depth of the situation that I'm in is bigger than me. I don't know how to do what I've been asked to do. I am not responsible enough to be the person in this situation. And when you are following God, he will always lead you into situations where you feel over your head. I'm gonna tell you, John the Baptist was hip deep in water, but he felt completely over his head in that situation. And I want to tell you, that's one of the indicators that you're actually going where God calls you to because he's always going to call you deeper than what your personal capacity is. He's going to set an expectation for more than you could accomplish within yourself because God wants to show his glory through his people. And so he's not going to do enough to where people would say, you're responsible for that. He's going to call you to something that when it is accomplished, everyone will look and say, only by the grace of God did that happen. And so when you find yourself in a situation that feels bigger than you, you do the next small thing. And so for John, it was, okay, I'm going to take hold of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, who people would come to, and just by putting their hand on the edge of his cloak, they would experience healing. When Jesus spoke, demons would flee. People would be set free. People would be called up out of the grave just by his voice. And John had to grab a hold of him and baptize him, feeling completely inadequate which is just one of those foundational truths that your feelings cannot be a guide for your life. Because as you approach the calling and the responsibilities of God on your life, your feelings will scream, this isn't for you. Your feelings will scream, this is for someone better than you. This is not for people like you. But the calling of scripture is clear, that God is gonna call you to greater things than even that which Jesus did during his ministry. And so expect, if you're following the leading of the Spirit of God, that there's going to be times where you feel like, I am just too deep. Okay, if you're too deep, that's okay, but just do the next right thing. God will open up the door. God will make a way. God will work in this situation to bring all of the glory upon himself and show that he is just working through you. One of the important theological aspects to this passage that makes it completely worthy of you writing in your Bible and putting a big circle, there's a theological point in here that this is one of the most concise places where you see the trinity of God in scripture. That if you're ever in a conversation where someone asks you about the trinity, this is a great point to place because here you see Jesus, God in flesh, Emmanuel. You see the spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And you see the Father's voice speaking from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And you see the Trinity in a very concise location. And it's pretty easy to remember because you can just put that that marker that at the baptism of Jesus, you see the whole Trinity. And so in here, John is in deep water. I kind of separated, for my sake, my sermon today into three different elements of water. We have deep water, we have breaking water, and we have hot water. And the next one is breaking water. And I understand that I might be breaking some grammatical rules with the way that I'm saying that. But if you've ever been approaching the time where a child is supposed to be born, you know you are just waiting for that water to break right? You you are waiting for for that circumstance to open up that is beyond your control. And as we get into the next passage that I just want to highlight a little bit today, because the three passages I'm covering, I have whole series on each of these passages. And so I have to kind of get the auctioneer voice going a little bit for time's sake to make sure that I get through the pieces that we need to get through. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it's a very famous interaction. It, it, it builds up to John 3.16 that anyone who's been around America's sports, they've seen that passage at the ball games before. You probably have John 3.16 memorized. I hope you do. But the context surrounding that critical passage often gets overlooked. It comes from Jesus' interaction with a Pharisee named, named Nicodemus. And then the passages following it are tremendously important as well. And we're going to look at those. But as many times as I've taught on John 3 and on John 3, 16, I want to tell you that there, there's an aspect to what Jesus was speaking into in this passage that I've never really given proper consideration until I was preparing for this message. And so I'm excited to share some different pieces of this. We're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We'll put this up on the screen. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to see Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, a couple aspects of this. First of all, Pharisee, Sadducee, I understand that's language that we don't really talk about too much. And so I just want to give you these two very simple things. The ruling parties of the Jewish synagogue at the time, it was divided between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You can think of them like Democrats and Republicans, okay? Um, And they're divided on some major issues, but they're all trying to rule, rule together. The Pharisees believed that there was life after death and the Sadducees denied the existence of life after death. So the Pharisees had some natural compulsion towards some of the things that Jesus taught when he talked about everlasting life. Like they they would be drawn to that where the Sadducees would be pushed further from Jesus. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he believes in life after death. And he has a curiosity about the teachings of Jesus. And so he wants to go and he wants to hear more. He wants to ask questions. But did you notice when Nicodemus was coming to talk with Jesus? It was at night. Now, typically Jesus would be teaching during the daytime in the synagogue. That would be the time where people would gather together and they would ask questions. They would even try to trip him up with questions. And Jesus would teach in parables and straightforward and he would do miracles. And Nicodemus had seen this and what Nicodemus had seen of Jesus was so potent. It was so powerful that it overcame some of his doubts that he just had this curiosity that drove him. He said, okay, I don't want to be seen by all my Pharisee and Sadducee's buddies, because there might be social consequences, but I so want to ask Jesus some questions. I'm going to go see him at nighttime. And I'm going to see if he'll answer some of them. And so Nicodemus likely was coming to Jesus with some fear of social consequences because travel at night, it was different. They didn't have the flashlight on their cell phones yet at this time. I mean, they didn't even have, like we did in the 80s, the big plastic flashlights that you could bring with you if you were traveling at night. They didn't have street lights. And so Nicodemus is walking to see Jesus under the light of the stars. And as he's approaching, and he's going here in secret. I think that it's safe to assume, and I will gladly mark this with an asterisk. This is an assumption. He's thinking, if other people find out that I'm spending more time with Jesus, there might be consequences to my life. Because to be a Pharisee, they weren't just employed by the synagogue. They would have a business as well. And the Pharisees, they were, they were rule followers. They were pretty good people. Like they were gonna be honest with you in your business dealings down to the, the, the decimal point. Like they were going to do things right, and because of that, they would be trustworthy, they would get more business. But if people didn't like where you were going with your theology, if they thought you were following this Jesus guy, you were at risk of getting put out of the temple. If you were put out of the temple, then people wouldn't want to do business with you, and so not only would he use his lose his social influence within The temple, if he began to follow Jesus, he could actually lose his career, impacting his entire family and his capacity to feed them. And so there were real risks involved that Nicodemus was likely mulling over as he went to see Jesus. And as he got there, and he said, there's this tension because we can't deny that you're from God because you work these miracles but he still has this fear that's kind of there, and maybe you can relate to it because you felt the the tension of, I know that there's a God there because the the stars in the heavens, they just declare that there's the glory of God, that the universe doesn't make sense without an intelligent creator because there's been experiences in your life where God has drawn you towards himself, and you can't deny that he's there, but you are reluctant to just give your life over to him because there might be social consequences. There might be business consequences. There might be changes that have to happen in your life if you were to do that. And that's the point of tension that Nicodemus was at. There's things that he knew like there's something about you, but there's something at risk as well. And when you think about that tension that Nicodemus was in, Jesus' response to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus, you're worried about losing your life. If you come to me, you have to become a new life. You have to be spiritually made new. I mean, to, to echo things that would be taught later through the Apostle Paul, you, if anyone is in Christ, there to be a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. Nicodemus, if you're coming to me, you better count the cost. Don't begin to build a tower if you're not ready to invest the full cost of building it because you'll get halfway there and then you'll look like a fool. Nicodemus, if you're gonna to come to me, it's gonna mean death to that and life to something new. And it puts the whole experience of Nicodemus coming to him and walking through the darkness in a different area. And it's interesting because with all of the power that it was at work through the person of Jesus, you'll see this in all of his interactions. The father will draw someone towards him Jesus will speak and he'll give the invitation because this is the context in which you read John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so whoever believes will not perish but will have eternal life. Jesus gives the information and he gives the invitation but Jesus does not violate the will of Nicodemus. He draws him in but there is something in Nicodemus that he has to make a decision. He has to choose to bend the heart, to bend the knee, to choose to follow Christ. And he does not violate that within someone. And with you, you've probably seen works of God in your life. But the question remains, have you reached a point where you've felt the drawing towards God? You've felt the invitation, but have you authentically said yes to it? And Jesus doesn't force that yes. He invites and he draws, but your will has to submit. I mean, it reminds me of, of, of parenting so much because when, when we were you know, younger than we are right now, I'm not gonna say I'm old, but I, I recognize I am not as young as I once was, especially as I look back on pictures of before kids happened to me. But like, I'm gonna show you this picture of my wife, Tia, when she was pregnant. Um, she is beautiful. I love her so much. But look at that watermelon that she has hiding under her shirt with our first child. And as we were approaching, uh, my, my daughter, My first daughter was due right around the end of the year. And I was like, come on, tax credit. Come on, tax credit. Come on, tax credit. But I learned that these children will not listen to me even when they're in the womb. And so she was born six days after tax credit. You just can't make it happen. My, my next daughter, her birthday, um, was due date was right close to 10, 10, 10. And I was like, how cool of a birthday would that be? 10, 10, 10. That would be so easy for me to remember. Her future husband will send me a thank you card. Like, let's make it happen. 10, 10, 10. She was born 10, 13, 10. Three days. Three days. Come on, child. And as we were approaching the due dates, the the older women in the church, they give us all kinds of advice of how you can make the baby be born when you want to. Some of the advice was more fun than the other advice. And if you don't know, I'll let you not know. I'm not going to explain it. Um, some of the other advice was like, eat spicy food. And I'm like, diarrhea and childbirth really shouldn't mix together. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. We were living in the Florida, Ohio area. One of the sweet old ladies, she was like, Every child that I ever had, I had them the same day that I drove over a railroad track. I'm like, you can't drive anywhere here. Of course, you ran over a railroad track because you can't even leave your house without running over one. Like, like you can't control it. Like, without medical intervention, like, you just can't. You can't make it happen on your chosen day. You have to wait. And as a parent in spiritual things, it's like we wanna see our children choose God and we can invite and we can influence to a point, but it's their choice to choose God. And in your spiritual life, there's people who have probably tried to push and direct, but they can't make you choose him. There has to be this point of recognition where you understand that your heart has chosen Christ. To discover him, scripture compares it to like discovering a field that's for sale and it has a treasure that's buried in it. And you sell everything else you have so that you can buy that field and claim that treasure as your own because knowing Christ is worth any cost that you could pay. For me in my experience, I thought I was dealing with heaven and hell when I said yes to Christ. And when I gave my heart over to him, he began to heal things that I did not know was broken. He began to bring peace and joy like nothing I had ever experienced. And as people have tried to influence you towards him, it's not that you would adopt a rule book, it's that you would engage in a relationship that requires your consent to enter, of saying, yes, God, I feel you drawing me, me Father. I see, Christ, what you have done for me in dying on the cross, and so I confess that Jesus is Lord, that I believe in my heart, that God, you raised him from the dead, and scripture says that you will be saved. And it's not just that you're saved, but it's that you are filled. And darkness is pushed out by light. And I hope that standing here today, you can recount, maybe it was at a point in childhood or in recent years, but I hope you can point to the time where you say, this was the point when I gave my heart over, where God came in and began to change things. Because that's where joy and fulfillment is found. Nicodemus is an interesting story. There's theological debate. And I'd say that most of the debate leans to the fact that he was a follower of Christ and I can make that argument. But we just don't really have a lot of clarity from scripture to to speak from like a authoritative point of this is how he was. We see Nicodemus in John 19. And after Jesus died on the cross, he was one of the men who actually brought his own myrrh. It was very expensive to help take care of the body of Christ after he had died and helped lay him in a grave. And so that that is an element of faith. But I wanna tell you, leave no room for doubt for your loved ones. Leave no room of doubt for your friends. Scripture tells us we can't really judge each other because we can't even judge our own motives within our own heart. But scripture also tells us to judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. And I hope your life bears the fruit of Christ. I hope it leaves no question marks for people about You know, Nicodemus, were were you too afraid that you, you, you took the body in secret as well? You visited Jesus in secret? I mean, Jesus said that, you know, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my heavenly father. Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to say, I don't care if it has social costs. I don't care if it has career costs. I don't care if it has relationship costs, because I know that if I get this part of my life right, everything else will fall into line. That if I seek first the kingdom of God, Everything else will be added. All my other concerns. I'm gonna tell you, if you get this part of your life right, everything that is broken will fall into line. But if you keep this part of your life wrong, every part of your life that is going the way it should will eventually break apart because this is the foundation that everything else is built upon. And if there's struggle in your marriage right now, work on this foundation of your relationship with God and that's how you're gonna build a healthier marriage. It all starts with this foundational piece. And Nicodemus, he had something to lose. It's interesting, kind of an opposing story uh, that that you could compare this to is in the gospel of John chapter four, as we see the woman at the well. And and this was a whole different story interaction, and Samaritans, if you don't know anything about culturally what was going on with the Samaritans and the other Jewish people, the Samaritans were defeated and they were brought out into exile and they adopted a lot of pagan worship. And when they got to come back to their homeland, they brought the pagan worship back with them. They married with other, other peoples. And so the, the Jewish people who were still following God, they looked at them with disdain and they actually referred to them as half-breeds, half-dog is the way that they would speak to them. They had a hatred for the Samaritans and the Samaritans had some theological issues that did not line up with scripture. And so a, he, a good follower uh, from, from Jerusalem, they wouldn't even eat food that a Samaritan had helped prepared. They wouldn't drink from a cup that a Samaritan had touched. They wouldn't even speak with them. They would avoid and go out of their way to stay out of their lands. They had a hatred for them. And so Jesus had been traveling and he stops at this well and his disciples go into the town to get food. And Jesus has this, in, this interaction uh, with, with the Samaritan. And I understand I'm skipping some of my slides for time's sake. If you would like to see another message on this, go watch the one from first service today on Facebook. Um, Gospel of John chapter four, verse six. It says, Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Now, A couple things. Time of day matters in this passage as well, just like it did with the one with Nicodemus. Time of day matters because it's noon, and it was culturally not the normality to go and collect your water at noon. In southwest Florida, we get this, because if you had to go on a mile walk to go collect water, you would not do it at noon because you would have to drink the whole contents of the water just on the way back as you became a puddle. We understand the heat. This would normally happen in the morning, but this is what we find out as this Interaction progresses. Jesus says, as she questions him, he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water and I would get it for you so that you would thirst no more. And she says, give me this water. And he says, okay, go get your husband and bring him back and I will. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you answered honestly because the man that you live with now is not your husband and you've had five husbands already. Now look, in this point in time to have had five husbands already and be living with someone who is not your husband, this was like some extreme Jerry Springer stuff, all right? This was was not okay even in Samaria. And for a prophet, for a person of God to kind of expose that area of her life, it would have been shocking. But it reveals to us some of why she was probably doing what she was doing in the middle of the day. So we we don't know. And so once again, this is going to be some assumptions. Her first husband could have passed away. He could have died. She could have committed adultery or he could have just put her out. The second husband, probably a little bit of grace and compassion in him. It's not normal to marry someone who has already been married. And then that fell apart. The third husband, it's a strange choice for a guy in that time and culture to marry someone who's already been married twice, that fell apart. Culturally speaking, by the time we get to the fourth and the fifth husbands, we're getting to some relationships that probably were difficult. That culturally, these people would be out of alignment with a lot of normalities and probably would have been a much rougher situation. And by the time you get to living with someone who is not your husband in this time and age, you were socially outcast, you were deplorable. And if you tried to go where the other women were, they would probably say things about you, not directly to you at first, but to each other, that would make you know that you're unwelcome. It would escalate to things that would be said directly to you And it would bring you to a point where you would rather fight the heat of the day than fight the emotional battle that would happen from being around other people your age. She was in a tough spot. Jesus would talk to some people that you might be surprised by. Jesus would speak to the people like he did to her that would be uncomfortable for people in the church to speak with. And I think that's challenging and I think it's meant to be. But her response to him, it stands in contrast to what Nicodemus, a religious ruler's response was. This passage has a lot of interesting points to me because even to the disciples of Christ, the response was very different. And band, if you guys want to make your way up, I'm going to begin to wrap this thing up. Nicodemus's response was to kind of stay in the background and kind of stay quiet because he had things to lose and he had things to contemplate and he had to weigh his options. She was already at the bottom of the social stratosphere. And so what happened when she heard this invitation from Christ, her response was she went back to her town and she said, everybody, come and see this man who told me everything about myself. Now look, if there was ever anyone in the context of scripture, who was unqualified, who was out of their depth, who was in hot, wa- in hot water socially, it was her. Her life was in a terrible situation. She was looked at as one of probably the most immoral people in town, living with someone out of wedlock, having been married five times. And she went back and she said, Everyone, come. Is this the Messiah? Come and see for yourself. And it confused the disciples, but the, one, the disciples who have been following Jesus, learning from Jesus, seeing the example of Jesus, they went into town to get food and came back with food. The woman of ill reputation went into the town and came back with people. Now, who do you think Jesus was more fulfilled by? He told his disciples, he said, I have food that you guys don't even know about in this passage because he was filled up on the fact that this woman who was lost is now found and she is reaching out to other people. And so when we have this sense of a drawing from the Father, we can get hung up on social things or we can be so excited about it that we don't even care and we just wanna proclaim the name and we don't care if the people we're telling had just been ridiculing us and hating us. Like, like we will have a response to who Jesus is will we go out and just say I don't care what anyone thinks I'm going to proclaim his greatness and no matter what they say to me I don't even care or am I going to slowly contemplate and stay in the background in the shadows and I hope for you that your experience of seeing the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ is so moving that you say I don't care what the costs are I don't care what people think, I don't care what people say, I don't care if I lose status in my career field, I don't care if it has financial cost, time cost, because giving him all of me is worth anything and any cost at any point in time, because what he gives when I receive him, the world could never offer. So where is your heart at with him? Is he the treasure that you have found, or is he the person that you contemplate? Is he Lord, or is he just a good teacher? And as your pastor, I would want you to have confidence that you have made the decision, that you have tested him and found him to be good, that you you have started. Or restarted your walk with God because the Father can draw you, Jesus can invite you, but there's a choice that has to happen within your mind and within your heart. If you're ready to get started or ready to get started again today, He's ready to receive you and we would walk with joy around you as you make that choice. Church, will you pray with me? Just bow your heads. Father, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead not to just prove that he was good to his word but to extend new life to us and as we make this decision in our will and you meet us here would, by your spirits presence and movement in our mind in heart hurry right now would you just confirm to us that you're active that you are restoring that you are healing and that you are guiding and as you move in our heart and in our mind to take steps, we will obey because you are Lord and we give you our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing with us?